At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under the Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressed him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priest, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can clearly see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found him in no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one that they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Could you please stand? As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who had mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence... We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. On this night each year, along with Christians all around the world, we stop and we turn our attention to the cross. And one of the things that the cross tells us is just how far God is willing to go in his love for us. One of the things we're often reminded of on Good Friday is just the incredible physical suffering that Jesus was willing to endure because of his love for us. But as I I read through those gospel stories this week about those last hours leading up to his arrest, the events that led to his crucifixion and then his death on that cross, one of the things that struck me was just how much more he was willing to endure and suffer than just the physical. Think about a time with me, if you would, a time when you have experienced being alone. One of those alone times that was so deep, so excruciating, that you felt it at your very core, that you knew in that moment that you were truly, truly by yourself. How did that feel? What was that experience like? I read recently a survey from 2010 by the AARP. He said one in three adults who are age 45 and older 
said that they are chronically alone, chronically struggling with loneliness. It's a common struggle. It's believed that uh, the emotional distress of aloneness um, is just as much a risk factor in mortality as smoking is, just as dangerous. I would say loneliness is one of the most common struggles that people bring to my counseling office. It is a difficult, difficult thing to walk through. Um, We are just not made to be alone, are we? And I'm not talking about the kind of aloneness that we enjoy when we go take a nice walk through the woods, you know, and we reflect on the beauty of nature. The kind of aloneness, you know, where you can be alone, but you still feel connected to others, where I still know that any moment I reach out, they're there, and they're there for me, and they care about me. Not, not the kind of aloneness that we experience when we curl up in a, a chair with a nice book. Again, knowing that I'm still connected. I'm talking about the kind of aloneness we experience when, when we feel disconnected. The kind of aloneness we feel when others have turned their back on us or aren't there for us or don't even notice us. Many of you have recently seen the movie Gravity. It's a movie with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney and and the, the filmmakers try to help us experience what it's like to be in outer space completely alone, all by yourself, in this immense sea of darkness and emptiness and silence. And as you watch that movie and you see these characters alone in that setting, completely isolated, I mean, you almost feel their aloneness kind of envelop you. They do a good job of making you feel what that might be like. But I don't actually think that's the most difficult kind of aloneness. Difficult, scary. But I think the most difficult, it's the kind that David talks about in the 55th Psalm. It's the kind he talks about when he says, you know, all around me there were enemies. There was enemies outside of Israel who were wanting to attack me. There, There were enemies within my country. But then he says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But as you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among worshipers, that kind of betrayal, that kind of abandonment, that kind of aloneness, that's the hardest to endure. And, and we will do just about anything to escape that feeling, won't we? When, when you come face to face with that, I will run from my betrayers or those who reject me. I will strike at them to try and crush them. I will take something to try and numb that feeling. Some people hate it so much they will try and flee life itself. Because we hate that kind of aloneness, that kind of rejection and betrayal. When I read the story in the Gospels, one of the things that struck me was how, how Jesus responded to those things. When you look at his walk to the cross and the things he experienced with the people who were closest to him, it just struck me how different he was in his response. Now, we expected the political and religious leaders of his day to be the ones who rejected him, and they did. Um, He'd been experiencing that for a long time. But we also see in that story the story of Judas. Judas, this man who had lived with him, who Jesus had loved as a brother, this man that he had sacrificed for, this man who heard the wisdom in Jesus' words, who saw the power in his miracles, who saw the incredible love expressed and compassion in his mercy, this man 
who had walked with him and sat with him and heard from him. This man was going to betray him and sell him out for just 30 pieces of silver. And, and what's amazing when you read that story is Jesus knows this. Jesus sees this, is aware of this. And yet when you look at those hours just before his arrest, what does he do with Judas? He washes his feet. He sits at a meal with him. He teaches him and encourages him. He prays for him. In fact, even as those who are going to arrest him come, and Judas is about to betray him, he calls him friend. Look at the story of Peter. Peter, this man who, who is so passionate in his commitment to Christ, he can in no way imagine that he could ever deny Christ, ever turn his back on him. He could no way imagine this one he loves so much he could ever turn away from and reject. And Jesus knows it. Jesus tells him, predicts this is what's going to happen. He just can't believe it could be true. And then Peter, a, a slave girl, a servant girl, comes up and says, you're one of those with Jesus after his arrest. And to, to one of those who's the, who's the most powerless in his society, even to her he says, I, I don't know him. And then when another asks him, it's, I, I don't know him, I swear I don't know him. And when a third time he's asked, he calls down curses upon himself if I'm lying about knowing him. I do not know him. If you were standing in the corner and you heard someone you loved saying that, you heard those words coming out of their mouth about you, what would you feel? What would that be like to hear someone you loved and sacrificed for and cared about and intimately lived with to say those kind of words? Jesus knew those words. He heard those words before they were spoken. And he sat with Peter, and he loved him, and he encouraged him, and he washed his feet, and he prayed for him. He even in some ways seemed to prepare Peter for the guilt and shame he knew he was going to experience as a result of it. He poured his life into the one that he knew was going to speak those words. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in those last moments before his arrest, experiencing such, such distress, such weight on him, that he speaks this word, these words to his disciples. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. We're told that by the gospel writers that he, he was under such distress that he literally was sweating blood. Now imagine if a neighbor you hardly knew came over with that kind of weight on his shoulders and spoke those words to you. How would you respond? Wouldn't you step up and be willing to do anything to be with them? To, to sit with them, to care for them, to stand beside them while they went through that. So as I read this story, I think, why couldn't they even stay awake? Because they obviously loved him. They cared about him. Why couldn't they stay, stay awake and stay with him? And I don't know, but I wondered if some of it isn't they are so used to Jesus being the one who cares for them, who is the source of strength, the source of stability, the one who is always there in their need. It's hard for them to even imagine what it would be like to step up for him and be there for him. But they didn't. And those that he loved, he experienced that they couldn't even stay awake for him. And he continued to love. In fact, Mark tells us when he was arrested that everyone deserted him and fled. Didn't just leave, but they deserted him. And as I thought about that, I thought, think of those people who were standing there that deserted him. 
Like think of the Apostle John. This one who Scripture tells us Jesus loved. He's part of that inner circle that Jesus loved dearly. And he loved Jesus dearly. In fact, in those last hours before his arrest, as Jesus is teaching them, John so trusted Jesus, is so comfortable with him, that he literally leans over and rests his head on his chest. That's the kind of trust and intimacy that he had with his Savior. And John deserts. John takes off with everybody else. And what's most amazing in those stories, what's most amazing in that account of those events, is that as Jesus makes his way to be hung on that cross, to literally have spikes driven through his flesh and hung on that cross, people are mocking him and insulting him. People seem to be celebrating his suffering. These are, the, these are the very people who were willing to trade a murderer for him. And as he hangs on that cross, looking in the faces of those people, these are the words that Jesus speaks. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Those are remarkable responses in the face of that kind of rejection and betrayal and aloneness. Always he saw the people in front of him. His love endured. His love continued. Finally, in Matthew 27, 45 to 46, we read these amazing words. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, Lama, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remarkable words. Darkness comes over the whole land, envelops everything. Darkness that seems to reveal God's displeasure with, with man's rejection of his son. It seems to reveal God's judgment upon the sins of the world. And in the midst of that, Jesus speaks those remarkable words. Those, the same words that King David spoke in the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people listening, I'm sure, would have recognized those words. He knew those were the words of a righteous sufferer. That's who Jesus was. Remarkable words. Not, not the words of one who has lost faith in the Father. He calls him, my God, my God. But words, of, words that have an obvious agony in them, isolation to them. Um, it's, they're mysterious words. What does it mean for God to forsake God? That's a mystery that I don't even begin to fully understand. But we know that something about it was incredibly difficult. There's something about it was incredibly alone in that mysterious moment when for the only time in all of eternity, God turned his face away from the sun. What a remarkable, amazing thing that Christ was willing to do for us. And he did because in that moment, all of our sins... Your sins, my sins, were upon his shoulders. In that moment, he absorbed every bit of the curse and punishment that our sins deserved. In that moment, Scripture tells us he became sin for us. The cross reveals how incredibly far God is willing to go in his love for us. The incredible suffering, the horrific suffering he is willing to endure. It also tells us the horrific rejection and betrayal 
and even aloneness. Not that the aloneness of the father in any way was rejection or betrayal. It was driven by love. But he was willing to endure it all for us. And as I thought about it, I thought, when we look at this cross today, when we stand before this cross, I hope that we'll stop and that we'll remember that when we stand before this cross, we stand before a love that is, that is longer and that's wider and that is higher and that is deeper than anything we could possibly imagine or dream of. When we stand before this cross and we feel alienated or alone or betrayed or rejected, we stand before somebody who completely understands, who can empathize with us, who cares about us. When we stand before this cross and we feel too sinful and too selfish and too messy to be worthy of love, we stand before a love that was so deep and so strong that it endured and survived and flourished in the face of rejection and insults and betrayal and aloneness. It flourished in the face of those things. When we stand before this cross, we stand before a love that will endure through anything. The Apostle Paul, trying to reassure his readers that their hope to be rescued from God's wrath someday through Jesus Christ is a reasonable and a sure hope. They can count on it. They should persevere in following him because they can be sure that what Christ has done for them and the, the hope they have of that, in that final day being rescued from the wrath of God because of Christ, because of his sacrifice. You can count on it. You can be sure of it. Don't let go of that hope. He tells them, here's the words that I want you to remember and hold on to. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that can love the sinner. It's a love that endures in the face of anything. That's the love that we put our hope in. That's the love reflected in the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we really don't fully understand um, the the incredible things that you had to endure. We know something of physical suffering, and when we hear this story, Father, it is it is hard to believe what you were willing to to send your son to go through. But Father, there's so much more to the story. So much more about how deep your love is and all that you're willing to endure. And Lord, we are just thankful. We're in awe. Um, we are in awe of a God who would love us that much, as unworthy as we are. We're in awe of a God who would be willing to take upon himself what we deserve, the punishment, the rejection, the cruelty that we deserve because of our sin. And you took it all upon your shoulders. And we thank you. In your blessed name, amen.